Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's get our Bibles open in front of us. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 6 this week. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. So last week we saw Andy unpack for us the passage about Jesus choosing his apostles and setting them up as uh, the leaders of his church as they go forward to establish his kingdom. And so we come straight from that. He's come down the mountain with his apostles and here he comes to lay out the ethics of his kingdom. So let's read Luke 6, verses 20 to 26. And it says this, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray again as we reflect on God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Lord, you reveal yourself to us in creation and more clearly in your word. Teach us this morning, we pray. May we chew on what you have said to us. Be affected by it, be impacted by it, and apply it to our lives. Do this by the Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, as I say, last week we saw Jesus establishing his kind of his motley crew. You know, there are are a bunch of people who, on a societal level, you wouldn't put together. They're not a natural fit in the society that they were, and yet Jesus brings them together and calls them his apostles, his emissaries, his sent ones, his delegates. They're to be the pillars of his kingdom. And he now comes through, as I say, to establish the ethics, to, to uh, bless those who kind of represent what the kingdom is about and to bring woes or curses, if you like, um, on those who don't. And really what we have here is very congruous. It's very... Um, consistent with what Jesus has been doing the whole way through this gospel. He's been going around uh, doing what you don't expect him to do, healing people who would not be touched, spending time with people who you're not supposed to spend time with. And so really the impression that you get as you go through Luke thus far with how Jesus acts with people is that this kingdom that he is establishing is kind of an upside down kingdom. It's not what we expect when someone talks about a kingdom. It reminds me of when I was four. I was in New Zealand with my uh, grandparents and they had a, a, a dinghy with a motor. And I remember at four years old, you know, I knew that, for instance, if you had a bike and you turned it left, you go left. If you turn it right, you go right. If you have a steering wheel and you turn it to the left, you go left. 
And I remember being so confused by operating the rudder because when I turn it right, we go left. And when I turn it left, we go right, and I would always get it wrong. I'd probably be okay with it now. I also saw uh, on the internet this week that someone in America, an engineer, has made a bike with a reverse axle. So when you steer it to the left, you go right. And it's really funny to watch people try and use it because you think that you'd be able to just tell yourself left is right, right is left. But I don't think we necessarily think about how much, uh, how intuitive it is to just balance yourself. So even just getting on it, people immediately fall off because they try and balance and obviously balance the wrong way. Um, it's not just in the riding. So when there are structures and, and, and methods and, and, and set rules about how things work, generally they sink into our brain very quickly. If we've always been used to a certain authority structure, for instance, we will think that's how all authority structures work. If you think that you always turn left and you go left, you're going to be surprised when you turn left and go right. And so Jesus here is doing something that is going to hurt our brain generally. He is making, as I say, this upside down kingdom, which kind of makes no sense to the structure that you might expect. Certainly, one of the things we see in the New Testament is lots of people do hate Jesus and his followers precisely because they're not doing what they expect they should be doing. You know, you're not the Messiah because the Messiah would be like this. He's not what they expect. So now Jesus is coming out to, as I say, lay out. What does it look like? What does this kingdom look like? And I think really one of the huge questions that comes from this passage could be summed up in this. Where is your satisfaction? As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, or perhaps not, perhaps you're watching and you don't know Jesus, the question that comes forward, which bears on all of us, is where is your satisfaction? And so let's, let's look at that. The, the first thing I just wanted to point out before we un- unpack this is this word blessed. You know, it's funny how often words like this appear in the New Testament. It's it's kind of makes it look like it's a very simple translation when you see it and you think, oh, it just means blessed. But the word is actually a lot more complicated than that. There is another word which he could have used for blessed, which he doesn't. And this word originally, when you go back to the oldest sources in Greek, was only used in one context. It was used to describe the blessed bliss of the gods who are completely detached from human civilization, completely detached from problems and issues It was used to describe that bliss of having nothing wrong ever, not having to worry about other people's problems. As it then started to be evolved through usage, it then started being applied to the rich who could be aware that there were problems in the world, but they were living so far out of the city in these huge complexes that they never had to be worried about it either. And so they were described with this word. But around the 300s, 400s BC, the Greek Jews started to do something quite revolutionary with it. When they were translating the Old Testament into Greek, they decided that the word to use to describe the person who knows what it is to know the Lord, this is the word we should use. And so in places like Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of sinners, you know, a walk with scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
It could be translated as all the joys of the one who does these things. In other words, it starts to be used not to describe a detached bliss away from problems. It starts to be used to describe a feeling of contentment, even in the midst of all the world's problems, because your delight is in the Lord. You are blessed because your delight is in the blessed one. And so it's quite revolutionary here that that the, the, the early Jews were doing this. And now as it comes into Christian usage, as Jesus uses it, again, he looks up. Now bear in mind, this is the detached blessedness of the rich and the gods. And Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you. It's a blessedness that is grounded in God. You can be very much in the world with all the problems that come with it. But you are established in God, in the blessed one. And so let's look at the specific things that Jesus uses this word to describe. To be poor, to be hungry, to weep. And obviously we can't take this in the most literal sense, you know, that that those who have the least amount in their bank account, those who have the least in their stomach and those who cry the most, you know, otherwise the, the path to blessing is to make bad investments, stop eating dinner, which would probably leave me weeping and then go and tell people it's because I believe in Jesus and they probably will insult you on account of the son of man. You know, clearly it's not the most literal usage of the word poor, hungry, weeping. You know, otherwise we really should stop ministries like, you know, cap, because actually leaving people in poverty is the most blessed thing we can do. We should stop eating. No, the, the reality is that this is a much more profound uh, use of poor, to be hungry, to weep. You know, the reality is even a rich man with lots in their account can be poor and hungry. I, I think of a family friend of ours who is a very, very successful businessman, owns multiple car dealerships, you know, a very nice house. And yet, from conversations I have with him and, and knowing him as a person, he is poor and hungry. He is grabbing onto Jesus because he knows that these things aren't really his to take. And the irony is, the person who has nothing to their name may consider themselves full and rich. No, actually, I've got all the consolation I need, thank you. You know, you can, you can have earthly things and still be, have that acute awareness that they are passing, that they are not yours to hold on to. There's a lack of satisfaction found in those things. And so blessed is the one who is poor. Blessed is the one who is hungry. Now, there's a little word there, which I think is completely shifts the whole thing. Three letters. Blessed are those who are hungry now. Blessed are those who weep now. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. What that little three-letter word does is it completely shifts our perspective to say, this is now, but there is something later. Yes, you may be poor now, you may be hungry now, but something else is coming. As I was reflecting on this, 
and thinking what this means for us, I was thinking, what really is the, is the most kind of quintessential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? How could you crystallize it? And, and I think it really could be this. The Christian knows what's coming later and has begun to prepare for it now. The Christian knows that there is a now and there is a later. We, we know the glories of the new creation to be in the presence of God. We know that God's judgment is coming and his wrath burns against sin. And we've begun to make our preparations now through Jesus. That God's wrath is coming against sin and that his grace is restoring creation. It's not one or the other. You can't say, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm scared of hell. Oh, well, I'm a Christian because I look forward to the resurrection. It's not one or the other. It's a, it's a view of what God is planning to do, which uh, implores us to think in a certain way now. The Christian is the one who looks ahead and knows that there are treasures offered to those who are covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's really an invitation to anyone who doesn't know the Lord to look ahead, to know that something is coming and to put your hope in him, to be covered by Jesus's blood. The offer is open. I've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress recently. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, it's fantastic. It's a an allegory of the kind of the Christian life. And it begins with a man who lives in what's called the city of destruction. And he's very content and very peaceful with his family and everything. And then he finds out that the city of destruction is going to be destroyed, clues in the name, and that the celestial city, the city beyond, has treasures untold. But he also becomes aware that he's been carrying this burden on his back the whole time that he, wasn't, he hadn't seen before. And now he's aware of it. It's all he can think of. And so he tells his family, I'm leaving this city. Come with me. I'm going to the celestial city. And everyone there laughs at him. Everyone says nothing's going to happen. People try and persuade him to come home. But he knows what's coming. The difference between him and them is he sees what's to come. And he begins his preparations now. So what does that mean for us? It means that we are blessed. We are happy. We are content now to be poor and hungry and weep, to say that my satisfaction is not in anything that I own or can own, but in what's to come. Not in the things that can slip through my hands, but the things that I will have given that cannot be taken away. Just notice the first kind of contrast, because everyone lines up, you know, Jesus is saying, blessed are you who are poor, but woe to the rich. Hungry, blessed are the hungry, but woe to those who are full. Notice the first contrast is, blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, the, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The, com- the, the coming kingdom is yours. But then when you look at the contrast, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. What's the message there? All the comfort that you currently have is all you're ever going to have if that's where your satisfaction is. Now, the challenge in there is that I've not actually never met someone who is content with all the consolation that they actually have. You know, it's funny. None of us ever think that we're going to get a meal that's that good that if we eat it, we're never going to eat again. 
None of us ever get a drink that we think, if this drink is good enough, I'll never need to drink again. And yet we keep telling ourselves that there is this material, there is this wealth that you can have, which when you finally get it, you'll never need anything else again. And it's not like no one's given us warning. There have been plenty of people who have gone before who have had everything and get to the end and say, it just doesn't satisfy And so the woe here is not just a a curse or a sneer. It's actually got a real kind of melancholy tone to it. You have received your consolation. What you have now is all you're ever going to have if that's what you try and find your satisfaction in. Does it satisfy? Answer honestly, no, it doesn't. If that's what you're going to be content with, that's all you will be content with, which is no contentment at all. Blessed are those who are poor, who are hungry now, who weep now. So the Christian isn't forced to throw off the pleasures of this world. You know, at Christmas time, I'm not going to sit down and say to Evangeline, look, we're Christians, so no presents, no material stuff. You know, we're not going to sell everything we have because that's what it means to be Christians. The Christian isn't marked merely by not owning things, but by how tightly we hold it in our hand. If you hold things tightly, they will be taken. That's what Jesus says. The one who has much, it will be taken away from him. And the one who has little, even what he does have, will be taken. We hold things loosely because we know there's a now and we know there's a then. The last thing we see in in the list of blessings that Jesus says is, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So we've kind of seen that, that first thing that comes through, that question of where is your satisfaction, which is a question that we all have to ask ourselves again and again, where is my satisfaction? But then we move, uh, Jesus takes us into this uh, fourth category of blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, we looked at this kind of Son of Man figure a few weeks ago, you may remember, the first time Jesus uses it, and he's referencing back to that prophecy we saw in Daniel. And uh, if you turn with with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, let's have a look at that again. So, Daniel's had this vision of one like a Son of Man, he says, coming He's been in the presence of the beasts. We see that at the beginning of chapter 7. And the beasts, just like Daniel in the lion's den, are surrounding him. They are fierce, ferocious creatures. But then he is called up, away from the beasts, into the presence of God's throne room. And there he is given a kingdom and authority that all nations should serve him. And Jesus uses this figure to say, that's me. I'm the son of man. So the question I have for us is why is Jesus using that title here? What leads him to say, blessed are you when people treat you this way on account of me, that figure from Daniel? Why does he do that? If we look in Daniel, where you have the vision, you have the prophecy of the Son of Man, and we can probably identify with Daniel here, because Daniel then says, I don't get it. In verse 15, he says, My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Well, they probably would. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him, 
What does this mean? Now, the interesting thing is, an angel then interprets this vision for Daniel. Notice this. He says, the four great beasts are the four kings who will arise out of the earth. Okay, so the beasts you saw, they're empires. So that's interpreted for us. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. So the beasts are interpreted as kingdoms, but the Son of Man is interpreted as the saints of the Most High. The one becomes many. What could that mean for us? What could that mean in relation to this passage in Luke? What it's saying is, for this prophecy to really happen, there has to be this intimate connection between the one and all of God's people. The Son of Man and the Saints of the Most High, you can't separate them from one another. So how can Jesus be so confident that people will indeed exclude and revile and spurn on account of the Son of Man? Because what's true of the Son of Man is true of the saints of the Most High. He is called up out of the presence of the beasts and vindicated and given authority. And so what has to follow? His people will be called up from the presence of the beasts to be vindicated and given authority. What is true of the one who represents you is true of you. And so what that means is, in this upside-down kingdom of God, it doesn't really make sense. Who are the ones who are being mocked? The royalty. The ones who God has given a kingdom and authority to. They're the overcomers. And who are the ones mocking? Who are the beasts? They're the ones who have already received all the consolation they're ever going to have already. To follow the Son of Man is the um, mission and the commission of every Christian to be the saints of the Most High. And everyone is welcome to join in on that. If you know Jesus or if you don't know Jesus, you are invited to join in in, in royalty. So then finally, what are we to do to follow in the footsteps of the Son of Man? What does it mean to be the saints of the Most High? Let's just finish off that blessing from Jesus. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then in the, in the woe, woe to you when people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Why is Jesus saying that unless he is commissioning us as his people to be his prophets, to speak for him, to be the prophetic voice which brings to bear God's word. This is how we follow in the footsteps of the Son of Man. The greatest comparison between the prophets and the false prophets, I think, is that story that Val read for us earlier. Think about that story in, in 1 Kings 22. You have the, the kings of Israel sat there together and Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, don't you have any other prophets? And Ahab says, well... There is one other, but I hate him because he never says good things about me. Well, well, of course you wouldn't like that prophet if he's saying the truth. And he says, you know, let him come out. So he, he comes out and he, first he says, yeah, yeah, it's all going to go well. Just go to war. You'll win. Great. And he says, what did God really say? I saw Israel scattered 
on the sheep like mountain uh, on the on the mountainside like sheep without a shepherd. Well, you can see why he doesn't like him. But then what does he say? He says, "Behold, I was in the presence of God. I saw God surrounded by heavenly hosts." And I know I've done this before, but it's so important for us to see what's going on in this story. What gives Micaiah the confidence to speak boldly to the king, a message that the king doesn't want to hear, while all the false prophets are saying, go for it. Micaiah's point is, I've spent time humbly in the counsel of God in order to stand boldly in the counsel of humans. This is the greatest contrast between the false prophets and the prophets. The prophets first spend time on their knees before God, which gives them strength to speak to the world, whilst the false prophets spend their time on their knees before the world and say whatever they want to hear. And so when Jesus says, when they exclude you and, spurn, uh, and insult you and spurn your name as evil, he's not saying, go out and insult everyone, and they'll probably insult you back. He's not saying, go look for controversy. Micaiah wasn't looking for controversy. He wasn't going, how can I insult the king today? But sometimes the truth is controversial, and that's when the prophets have to be true to their mission. Notice as well, the, the contrast is between the prophets and the false prophets. Not the prophets and the pagan nations, for instance. The false prophets were working inside the covenant community. They were working inside the people of Israel. Dece- deception from within. And so the message really is here for us in the church. I was thinking about this. Whenever the world presents a Jesus which is more palatable to the church, the church says, no thanks, we're okay with the Jesus that we have in the Bible. But when someone in the church presents a Jesus which is more palatable to the world, the church tends to go, yeah, okay, I could get on board with that one. Makes us look better. Just as the false prophets were speaking to those in Israel... The challenge for us is to sometimes take the Jesus which says things that we really would rather he didn't say and to proclaim that Jesus. If Jesus is your poster boy, you know, the one on your side, you've probably missed the point. Jesus isn't really someone that when he says something, we go, I agree with everything you say. Because if you do agree with everything he says, normally you're quite challenged by that and drawn to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, and we don't like it when someone does that. Why did the former prophets get insulted and persecuted by the people? Because they told them what they so desperately needed to hear, but didn't want to. Why did the false prophets get such a warm welcome? Because people would generally rather be comforted by a lie. So the question for us is, who are we going to be with this commission that Jesus has given us as citizens in his kingdom to be his prophets, to speak to the world? Are we the ones who say things which are sometimes uncomfortable or the ones who are not satisfied with the consolation that this world can offer? The consolation that having everyone on your side offers to be satisfied only with hearing those words from Jesus that he gives in Matthew 25, as he welcomes someone into his kingdom and says, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Jesus is commissioning his people to be the prophetic voice, both in the church and in the world. 
You have to bear in mind, prophecy in the, in the Old Testament is, well, in the whole Bible, is not simply telling the future. In fact, a lot of prophets maybe give, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Only tell the future a few times. Most of the time, the prophets are simply declaring God's word and applying it in full force. So Jesus' people speak what God has commanded us to give, to call a world to repentance. C.H. Spurgeon said this, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the work of ministry. So where do the entertainers come in? The Holy Spirit is silent concerning them. Were the prophets persecuted because they amused the people or because they refused to? The concert hall has no martyrs. There's the challenge. The Holy Spirit does not commission us to be entertainers, to say what people want us to say or what might be easier to hear. We are commissioned to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. A church that entertains instead of proclaims does not receive Jesus' blessing. Instead, he looks at them and he says, woe to you. And so really this comes full circle back to that first point. Where is your satisfaction? Is it in the blessing of Jesus or the blessing of the world? Not a detached blessing that is free from the problems that come, but a blessing that is grounded in the blessed one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have commissioned us to be your prophets, to speak your word, to proclaim your truth, to say things which sometimes people would rather we didn't say, sometimes things that we would rather not say, but things that are in keeping with your word. Lord, teach us to respond to you. Teach anyone who doesn't know you to be open to you, to hear from creator God. Lord, by your spirit, work in this world, we pray. We thank you for those verses that Ian brought to us earlier, Lord, that that say that you promise the spirit to bring us comfort and to bring this world to repentance. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that you do it in our lives. Bless us, we pray, with the reality of your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.